Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, it's Asha. Just a warning that this episode contains references to the mosque attacks of March 15th, 2019. Some of the material could be disturbing to some people. This can be hard stuff. If you need to talk to a trained counsellor, just ring 1737. I do believe that it's part of a lost plan, and if Allah did not want this to happen, it wouldn't have happened. From the moment that I heard about the attack, he moved my heart and my mind to surrender my trust to his plans. On March 15th, 51 Muslims, men, women and children, were killed while praying in two Christchurch mosques. It seems so incomprehensible why something like this could happen. But Islam teaches us that Allah is the great planner. We as Muslims keep reminding ourselves that this is Allah's plan and we don't question it. It's not a coincidence that he was chosen to be a martyr. Just like it's not a coincidence that Atta was chosen. And as painful as it is, it's a test. But inshallah, there will be a big reward. And as we walk, with four women left widowed after the attacks, Muslims have faith that, even though we may not fully understand his plan, that our Creator has set us this test for a reason. But now I'm happy, really, really happy. And this is Farouk's last wish. That image of seas of people rallying together with lights in their hands, hijab on their heads, determination on their faces, that is Christ's church in my mind. This is Asha Abdi. In our sixth episode of the series, we catch up with Hamima Tuyan, Sanjida Jamaniha, and Farah Talal in their three corners of the world. We're also going to get a little closer to one of our widows, Mohobali Jama, in order to understand her journey in the aftermath of the March Massacre, we need to go back, back to Somalia, back to a jewellery shop in Mogadishu, a refugee camp in Kenya, and to a time when she heard a man recite the Qur'an in Christchurch. It's late January 2020, ten and a half months since the attacks. Summer is in full swing, but it's been wild weather all over New Zealand. In Christchurch, we've had lots of wind, cooler than normal temperatures, and then suddenly, it'll get very, very hot again. The last few months have also been pretty turbulent for Mahobba. Ups and downs, lots of downs, as she struggles to get her old life back, after so much has changed. Since the attacks, 
Mahupa has lived with her elderly mother, her two brothers, and her cousin and nephew. Here, she wasn't alone. She felt safer and more supported. But there was one big problem. Kitchen, dining room, living room, together there. One toilet. We got two brothers there. No good. One toilet. Six people. But big problem for me. No sleep. I'm very tired. I'm sick. I'm thinking no good. My memory. I cry every night, every day. Not talk. It was really crowded and noisy. Mahuba shared a room with her 82-year-old mother. Her brothers, in the bedroom right next door, stayed up late, making noise, not coping with the suffocating living conditions. Something talking, talking, and me angry, hit. Some people talking, another day my husband died, a people died, talking, me angry, hit. The cramped quarters also meant there was no space for Mahupa to heal. This has been her test. In the last episode, we heard Mahubba and her family would be moving to a bigger home. She's excited about this. I am so happy that I'm going to have my own room that is quiet and private. All my belongings have been in a bag since my husband died. And she'll be opening a new door in her life soon. We Skyped in to Hamima in Singapore to see how she and her two boys are getting on. They're all doing okay, but she's getting some tough questions from her youngest. One day he asked me, um, Umi, but why would anyone want to attack Baba Umi? You know, with that incredulous tone in his question? I mean... His Baba wouldn't hurt a menacing spider that came uninvited to our house. His Baba would not hurt the bird that pecked on his favourite strawberry in our garden. I mean, his Baba would cook food and share our favourite food with our elderly neighbours who live alone. So why would anyone want to attack his Baba, right? So um, for him, I guess that's what's going on in his head. He couldn't understand, like... His Baba's not a baddie, so why would someone want to attack his Baba? Since Hamima visited Christchurch in December, and with the prospect of a nationwide remembrance coming up in a couple of months, she's been reflecting on the city where she lived, with Zechariah, the 51st victim of the attacks. first thing that came to my mind was thinking of Baba coming home and greeting us at the door with his sing-song, Assalamu alaikum, you know. Um, I think of the boys running towards him, jumping on him and dangling from his neck and back. I think of our cosy home, our garden, our nights watching Survivor or Block NZ together. While she and Zechariah had plans for their life together, Allah had other plans. My, my, my thoughts of Christchurch will, will never be the same. But, um, you know... Um, it will always be tinged with that tragedy. Except that I am proud to say of myself that the images that I have in my mind are that of the outpouring of kindness and solidarity we have all witnessed from not just New Zealanders, but also the international community. 
that image of um, seas of people rallying together with lights in their hands, hijab on their heads, determination on their faces, and just that firmness in their purpose for gathering together. That, that is Christ Church in my mind now, and I think it will be like that for a long time. Despite being born of such pain, these golden moments of solidarity in the wake of March 15th were truly special. Let's leave Christchurch for a minute and go back to 1960s Somalia, when Mohubba was born. My country, Somalia, has been a very beautiful country. And um, I grew up in a farm and I haven't grown up in Mogadishu. Mogadishu is Somalia's largest city. It's where a quarter of the population lives. Mohuba's family was pretty well off. Her father owned a jewelry shop in the middle of the city. My family loved me very much and they treat me like they didn't have no other children. I was very young, not looking for things, you know, wanting more attention, so I was really happy. But she was sent to live with her uncle's family to help out with their large farm a long way north of Mogadishu. This was kind of a common practice at the time. You know, a lot of kids didn't go to school and they usually needed to help out with the family business in some way. Mahuba spent her days tending to the goats and the camels and helping out with the chores. The reason I love my country, because I was young and my country does not many problems at that time. What most people think when they hear Somalia is probably war, famine, poverty, crime. My mum, who's from that area as well, is Mahuba's good friend. She describes Somalia as full of palm trees, big white concrete buildings with flat rooftops, and beaches with really white fine sand. I guess you can say the golden era of Somalia was in the 1970s. There was lots of Somali music and new American-inspired African fashions on the streets of Mogadishu. But in the late 1980s, fighting between regional clans started causing political tensions to flare up. The, the war started by little by little. At the beginning they started, you know, to stop in the car and, you know, taking the staffs away. Then, you know, finding a young lady somewhere and, you know, doing, taking her clothes away. Or when they took the cars or, you know, people robbed the car, they would go to um, Ethiopia. After that continued around one year, after that, the one started the bigger fight. In the market where we couldn't risk taking pictures, bullets and guns of all sizes and mechs are sold side by side with oranges and bananas. While an estimated quarter of a million children died last year, nobody knows how many survived without their families. Orphans are everywhere. $100, you can pick up an AK-47 assault rifle, and for $200, an M16. Families contribute whatever they have to arm their youth. It is the only way to remain alive. With gunmen or technicals roaming the streets, Baidoa has become an increasingly dangerous Wild West town. 
threatening and looting. They are racing to take advantage of the aid agency's weakness before American forces get here. Mogadishu is no man's land. Everyone is a leader, a follower, a looter, a killer, a scholar, and a peacemaker. Awful, frightening times. Mohopa's family were a target for the militia because they belonged to a rival clan. At one stage, they even abducted Mohopa's dad. They took him, abducted him, you know, cover his eyes. And one of the people who, the tribal people who was fighting, was kind to him, some, one of them, you know, and then bring back my dad. But it wasn't his time to die. Mohopa didn't escape unscathed either. In earlier episodes, Mohopa has put her difficulty recalling the events of March 15th, 2019, down to a head injury. I had a head injury that I got in Muktisho. It's hard for me to learn anymore. I can listen to the TV and write, but when a teacher explains something to me, I can't remember anything afterwards. If I just watch a TV show, I can't remember what it was. So here's how it happened, more than 20 years earlier, in Mogadishu, 1992. I have experienced people smash me with the gun in my head, so that was a very hard time, very bad time. Mohopo can't tell us much more than that about her injury, or why it happened. Just that she was hit in the head, and things were different afterwards. At that time, I really wanted to die because you can go to a hospital and also I was at that tribe that people were chasing. I wanted to die that day. My mom and my two brothers and my sister went away to go away from Mogadishu and they went to a refugee camp in Kenya called Otango. That is the name of the Ravichi camp, and then I stayed behind. Mahopa stayed behind with her father and her sister. They thought the violence would only last a little while, and then the family could be reunited. Several weeks passed. My hardest time was when my sister passed away. She wasn't feeling well on a Thursday, and a Friday she passed away. Mahopa's mother had ten children, four had died in their first two years of life. To have yet another sibling die from some unknown, probably curable illness, all while living in a war zone where your life is at risk every day, would have been heartbreaking for Mahupa. It was time for everyone in her family to get out of Somalia. Mahupa was 31 years old. My brother, my, my dad, and me fly in a plane, not like my mom and my brothers, and we came to Nairobi to the flight. And then we went to the Ravichi camp. The reason we traveled and survived was due with my mother's gold, because on the ways we sell them. To bribe the officials, militia, and anyone else that got in their way, Mahopa's parents paid them with the gold from their jewellery shop. They emptied out the shelves of their Mogadishu store into a suitcase and bought their way 
to a safe exit from what was becoming one of the most dangerous places in the world. It was really hard because you have to line up for the water. You also have to line up for the food. And when I arrived, you used to get corn and flour from, you know, the line up for the, because you will have a cart. But for me, I was, we were very lucky because our families who went overseas will send some money to us and that's how we buy, you know, some things. Seven years I lived in Turevichikam. One of Mahuba's uncles had already made his way to New Zealand as part of the UN's quota refugee program. Because of this connection, Mahuba and her parents and siblings eventually qualified to come to New Zealand as part of the family reunification program. I was very happy when I heard I was leaving the place because when somebody sent you money and you buy the food, the people who live in that country will come and take it away from you. So today you get the money, you buy the food, but you go to bed tomorrow you don't have it because somebody will rob you. After years of violence and hardship, of uncertainties about her future and suffering a head injury that she would feel the effects of for the rest of her life, Mahuba arrived in New Zealand. She had just one bag of belongings. Mahuba, her two brothers and both her parents settled into their new life in New Zealand. The family had survived many challenges, many tests, now, they had a chance to begin again. Mahuba took English classes, cooking classes, and learned to drive. Although she hadn't been taught to read, she, like many other Muslims, received Islamic lessons at home from a local Quran teacher. Here's Jumaiah Jones, our religious advisor for the series. So, memorizing the Quran is the goal of many Muslims across the world, as it comes with a lot of rewards and benefits in this world and the hereafter. Like Musa Nur Awali, he was known as a sheikh. So everyone that we know call him Sheikh Musa. He was one of the teachers that teach the children and adults to memorize the Quran in our community. And the title suits him because he was a very knowledgeable leader in our community. We've only ever called him Sheikh Musa in this series too. It's how I've known him all my life and how everyone in the Muslim community knew him. Sheikh Musa was a quiet, older Somali man who taught lots of people in our community. He had the most beautiful way of reading the Quran. Reciting Quranic verses is both like speaking and kind of like singing at the same time. And it's quite individualized, sort of like calling a karanga or a mihi. Everyone's is unique. Ali Muhammad, who you've heard a lot of in this series as Mahubba's interpreter, describes it like this. The way you read the Quran depends the person you know some people like you know when they read in something the voice is different everybody has their own you know and some people make you cry 
you know, when you're listening, you know, the way they read. Because some, some people could be reading, you know, in a book or giving you lecture or anything, but how they talk is different. So, just imagine Mahubba sitting with her family in their lounge, listening to this lovely man reciting the Qur'an. Her traumatic past behind her and a bright future in New Zealand ahead of her. The way I fall in love was, he used to read my favourite verses of the Qur'an and the way he read those two together made me fall in love with him. Sheikh Musa and Mohubba in love. My mom already fell in love with him and wanted me to marry her <laughs> to marry him and my dad wasn't here so he called my dad and asked. This isn't Sheikh Musa by the way. It's Imam Fawda, the spiritual leader of Al Nur Mosque. Jemaya recorded him at the masjid recently. But Sheikh Musa had an equally enchanting voice. It's easy to see how Mahubba and her family grew to love him. If two people love each other, they should be married. This is what I did. I got married when it was my time to be married. I was just seven when Sheikh Musa and Mahubba married. But like most Somali weddings, it was noisy, with lots of dancing and music, and men and women are in different locations for most Islamic weddings. It's one of our customs. So yeah, it's a room full of women with lots of Somali food and non-alcoholic drinks, because, you know, Muslims aren't supposed to drink alcohol. The women get super dressed up in these big, flowing, fancy dresses called dirat. You can see Mahubba in her wedding dress. She's allowed us to put a photo up on the RNZ website. But here's the thing about Muslim women and photos. Some women prefer not to look directly at the camera. Here's Jamaya. Modesty and privacy are really important Islamic virtues. Most Muslim women don't want to have their faces photographed. And that's why it's sort of one of the big challenges for our wonderful photographer for this series, Janet Gill. For us Muslims, Muslim women, there's a sense that if your whole face is being photographed with full makeup on, you're kind of uh, showing off your appearance uh, rather than being modest about how you look. For most Muslim women, we also want to be, to be judged not for our facial physical beauty, but more of our character and uh, intelligence. We prefer those to be the focus, not to be gawked upon. The photos from the series are amazing and we feel really help tell the story of our widows while respecting their modesty. Go and check them out. Back to Mahubba on her wedding day, 2003. Let me describe her. She's what we would call a classic Somali beauty, with pronounced cheekbones, a high nose bridge and big, beautiful brown eyes. She's dressed in a teal chiffon dress with a pearl headband and a large gold pendant, a nod to her father's jewellery shop in Mogadishu all those years ago. The gold that helped her escape war-torn Somalia. She looks radiant.
Farah Talal eats a traditional Jordanian meal called Maklube. Her trials have brought her back to her family home in Amman, Jordan. With her two-year-old daughter, Aya. It's January 2020. We ring Farah. My baby sister, who's no longer a baby, I actually had to tell her to leave the room so I could call you. I'm like, can you please give me your room? It's quiet and nice and cozy. What's the family home like? Not too big, but not too small. So there's like rooms, alhamdulillah, for everyone. And um, it's really cozy. So it's like a two-story townhouse, if you call it. Downstairs, there's the dining area and the kitchen and two rooms. And then upstairs, there's another like the living area another two rooms and obviously there's toilets <laughs> like maybe four toilets or something which is not you know you don't usually find that in New Zealand so look for a house Ata and I like can I we just find a house with more than one toilet please Muslims wash before praying five times a day so bathrooms are important no one knows Allah's plan but Farah is noticing some good in the wake of their devastating loss. I've got a lot of cousins who have, who like they have children her age and a lot of my closest friends have three-year-old girls, so they're getting along as well. So it's been really interesting and beautiful to watch Aya play and for, you know, like having new friendships. But the challenges keep coming. People might think if you're away and you're not in Christchurch or you're not around like you're going to just be just fine. But unfortunately, it's it's a different kind of struggle because I'm in my house and I'm just reminded of my wedding day and I've got my the flowers that I held on my wedding day. Literally, my mom kept them for me, for me, so I see them literally every single day. And then there's my wedding dress on top of my closet because I, I, wanna, I wanted to keep it so that one day my daughter would see it. And now I'm like, I literally see it every day before I go to bed. <laughs> And then there's the wedding photos and the photos of Ata, Aya and I all over there on the fridge in the corner. And then Aya would see it and Aya would show it to people and Aya would talk about her dad because she's not sure if people knows her dad here. Recently also she started like um, to call her dad. So she would grab his phone and it's like, hello, Baba. And she would like start, you know, talking to him and then she would give me the phone and then she would give it to my mom and we would talk to him and like, yeah, we love you. We miss you and, and all these things. And. And she'd be really happy. And then, like, literally, just to, like just before I had to Skype you, she grabbed his phone. She's like, hello, Baba. He's like, he's not answering. And I'm like, Aya, you know, where is he? She's like, he's in heaven. I'm like, yes, exactly. And that's why he's not answering. We're just pretending. But, you know, he loves you. And he, he you know, so it's just sometimes really hard. <laughs> like, he's always there. He's always on my mind. I'm always thinking about him. And especially when I look at our beautiful Aya and... And all I could think of is, if only you, you've seen her, Atta, if only you've seen her talk and grow and smile. And But alhamdulillah, I believe in Allah's wisdom. And I I know that he's, you know, he knows how happy she is. And inshallah, one day, we're all, all going to be reunited. Still, there are times when it's really hard. There are these special moments. So sometimes when she would meet a friend of mine, you know, and her husband and the children, and I could feel it like, you know, the vibes and the father is trying not to give a lot of affection to his children who are jumping over his head. And I is like, you know, 
it's been very interesting. And then she would ask about him and I had to explain all over again. And then sometimes when I take her to the playground and I just watch, you know, around me, all the parents and all the couples and it's just me and I over there or, you know, it's just like these moments when I miss him the most. Farah is thinking about her future. I have my notebook and I try to write and I like, I know that there is the next thing, but the, 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 the big question is when. I'm hard on myself. Like, I really just feel very, like, guilty. And, oh, my God, I don't want to be wasting my time. I need to start. But then I, like, I look at myself. And, alhamdulillah, Aya is not missing anything on school. Like, she's literally just a two-year-old enjoying life, having fun learning. And, and she doesn't need to go to a child care to learn. Like, if I have that privilege at this moment of time to take my time and, and think and try to restructure if that makes sense. She's definitely coming back to live in Christchurch when she feels ready. And even though she has a degree in biomedical engineering, she wants to become qualified to work in New Zealand as an early childhood education teacher. But coming home to Christchurch won't be easy. Because I feel like once I'm going to land in Christchurch and he's not going to be there... Niha and Nord, who's now five months old, had a step forward just a few weeks ago when her mother and younger brother finally arrived from Bangladesh. After months of being alone as a new mother, new to New Zealand, trying to live out her husband Omar Farooq's dream, she and Nord had their closest family members with them at last. Uh, I feel very happy, in fact. It feels really good that she is going to stay back here and we are going to stay with her, and I'm very happy. Life, quite suddenly, got so much better. I wake up 9 a.m., then just singing a song, something, Hindi song, a Bangla song, then <laughs> talk to Noor, then go to bath, then praying time, then lunch time, then sometimes I'm playing to my brother, uh, bicycle, cricket, sometimes. Then again praying. Every Friday, they'll go to mosque to prayer and pray to Farooq. And her 13-year-old brother is pretty happy too. I think the New Zealand is very good country the people is very good and my sister is very good for when my brother are dead will all time help my sister she's even thinking of her next steps i want to a job because right now now residency is done and uh, i start getting bored sitting at home so i'm just thinking if i go out and about and start working so maybe my mind will keep on being fresh. I'll be having fresh mind. And uh, yeah, I'll get some money also in. And you can hear that her English is coming along in leaps and bounds. And with her mum here to give some direction to her life, she has even discussed the possibility of finding a new father for Nord, who is now five months old. I will marry only that person who will accept my daughter, who will like my daughter. She's just thinking about these things at this stage. There's nothing Islamically that would hold her back from remarrying another man. 
Islamically, when the husband passes away, that's Jumaya. The wife have to be in a period of mourning or idda, which we have talked about in episode one, for four months and ten days, lunar calendar. And after that, if there is a chance of her getting married again, there is no ruling to prevent her from marrying again. But that's the Islamic rule. But according to many different cultures, uh, they do not follow accordingly. Some say that they get married only after one year, for example. But the ruling Islamically is four months, ten days. And as for Niha's mother, she only asks that her 21-year-old daughter wait a while before she considers another offer of marriage. She said, through Niha's interpreter Alka, I wish that she gets a, a new husband. If she lives here, she should remarry here. And she needs a partner for life, and Noor needs a father. It's good if she can wait till one year is complete. She can remarry after the first anniversary if she wishes so. But the tests are still coming. Some new problems are brewing for Niha. All widows and bereaved parents of the mosque attacks got payouts from the victim support donations that came in after the tragedy. Niha gave about half of the $90,000 to her husband's mother. There was quite a lot of pressure from the Christchurch Bangladeshi community to do so. But now... On 2nd of June, there's a hearing for the case and government has allowed six people to be brought in for victim's family. She's talking about the trial for the man accused of killing her husband and 50 others. The Ministry of Justice will bring in people from all over the world to testify against him. Omar's mother, Niha's mother-in-law, is one of them. In Bangali people are... So our community is helping her to be one of the people because she lost her son. So she can come here and she can fight the case after she comes here because she can't fight the case from Bangladesh. So she can fight the case from here and file a lawsuit against me. My lawyer will respond to that and then they will get some money out of me. So many things have fallen into place for Niha. But this is a new and unexpected challenge for her to face. We haven't quite finished with Mahupu's journey down the path Allah has set for her. It's early February, 50 years since the golden days on a beautiful farm in Somalia, 30 years since she was wounded and fled her war-torn homeland using gold and jewels to smooth the way. 17 years since she married Sheikh Mose with his enchanting voice and nearly one year since he was killed while praying to Allah. Mahuba is finally in her new house. She takes our lead producer Lana Hart on a tour. It's not until we're standing with Mahuba in her new home, seeing how happy she is, actually glowing with health, that it strikes us just how bad things have been for her. 
Yeah, another toilet shower. Yeah. Bathroom, I mean, toilet. she told us it was important. I went to live with my mother, two brothers, cousins in their small house. It's very crowded. But we'd never been to her old house, even though she lived just a few blocks away from me. When we asked to meet up for the series, Mahupa always wanted to meet at my home. Well, my mum's home. A place she feels comfortable because they're such good friends. Now, standing in this roomy, sunny home, I can see how much of a pressure cooker it was for Mahubba, squeezed into a crowded house, while so much was going on inside her head from the trauma of being at the mosque that day. Kitchen, dining room, living room, together there. One toilet. We got two brothers there. No good. One toilet. Six people. But big problem for me. I cry every night, every day. Not talk. Especially at night. One brother, every night maybe not sleep good. The TV, the light. Not sleep good. Talking, fighting. Now, another room, another room. And sleep. She told us about moving in. 28th January, the key, the night, my house, they moved here. She said she got the keys at 7 o'clock in the evening took the one bag she's been living out of since Sheikh Musa died and moved into her new home at 7.30, just like that. But very good choir, never very good. They're welcome, they never. Now, she has the quiet and space she needs to heal. Yes, I'm happy. The other revelation we had is we sat with Mahubba and talked about the difference this house has made in her life is what has really been behind her inability to drive anymore. I used to drive my car everywhere. I can't drive now. If I hear a slight bang, I get scared. We thought it was just the sound of the car starting up, the loudness of it. That was the problem. But it may have been something else. On March 15th, Mahubba sat through the gunman's rampage, then walked through the mosque in search of Sheikh Musa. Mahubba's car was parked at the back of the mosque that day, and it would become part of the crime scene. She associates the car with the day of the attacks. Getting in her car, even now, takes her right back to that day, and she just hasn't been able to face it. Until now. She recently sat in her car for the first time since the attacks. It was hard. She had her counsellor and a friend sitting with her. But she seems hopeful that one day she will drive again. She trusts that Allah has a plan, inshallah. Thanks for listening to the sixth episode of Widows of Shuhada. The anniversary of the attacks is coming up fast. In our next episode, we'll talk to our widows about what this means for them. And with Mohubwa, we visit the cemetery in Christchurch where Sheikh Mose and 40 other Shuhada are buried. This is Asha Abdi. Assalamu alaikum.
This series was produced by Community Access Radio Plains FM for RNZ, made possible by the RNZ New Zealand Oni Innovation Fund. Thank you, Shah. You'll be on radio. Okay. I don't have to switch this This series was produced by Community Access Radio Plains FM for RNZ, made possible by the New Zealand Donia Innovation Fund. Farah, Niha, Mohobbo and Hamima, thank you so much for sharing your stories and for letting us walk alongside you for a little while. Barakallahu fikum. Manahat wrote and produced this podcast series with support from Nikki Reese, Jemaya Jones, Asma Azar, and me, Asha Abdi, and a very big helping hand from the RNZ podcast team, Liz Garten and Justin Gregory had a lot to do with this episode. To Tim Watkin and Senior Commissioner Kay Almas, Jazakallah khair. Thank you, and may Allah bring you goodness. Lots of others mucked in, including Bryony Lustavika, Alex Hama, our caring translators Ali Muhammad and Alkis Rivanasan, and the entire team at Plains FM. There are some touching photos by the talented Janeth Gilk. Check them out on the RNZ website. The beautiful music is from Hasim Shaheen, an Egyptian oud player, and Liam Oliver from Christchurch. You can find Widows of Shuhada podcast on rnz.co.nz, plainsfm.org.nz, or any podcatcher, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us. And to the 51 who were lost that day, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. We came from Allah, and to Allah we shall return.